Let me invite you to turn to Job chapter 22 this morning. Job chapter 22. Tragedy and suffering are often not directly connected to a specific sin. You remember Uriah, the wife of Bathsheba, died unjustly. He did nothing deserving of his death. He was loyal to his wife and to his king, to his commanding officer. And when he was told to go to the front of the battle battle line by his officer, he did it. Suppose instead of dying, Uriah became a quadriplegic or or, uh, lost a lot of his movement. And his friends came to him and said, Wow, Uriah, what did you deserve? What did you do to deserve such a fate? You must have really messed up spiritually. You must have sinned somewhere. And Uriah says, no, I I did nothing specifically to deserve this. Yes, I am a sinner. I'm not perfect, but I didn't earn this injury upon myself. This was given to me by a power-hungry, lust-driven king who was more concerned about his own selfish desires and protecting his name than for the people who served him, the people who gave their lives to protect his kingdom. And you could think of hundreds if not thousands of of examples in Scripture where we see people who suffer without having it directly related to their specific sin. And this continues on in our day, does it not? That there are real victims of crime. There are real victims of illnesses. And my point is, is that in some cases, people are innocent in the tragedy or the illness that has come upon them. That doesn't mean that they've never sinned. It simply means that suffering is not always a direct result of a person's sin. And in subtle and extremely blunt ways, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar have charged Job with evil. They can't figure out for any reason why Job would be suffering other than that he has done something against God. Why else would so much trouble come upon you, Job, if you had not done something against God? And yet Job throughout maintains his innocence. I have done nothing deserving of what I've received. Yes, he says, I have sinned. I have sinned like everyone else has sinned. But but I have been right before God. I've been innocent, God-fearing, turning away from evil. And it's been increasingly difficult for Job to stand his ground because there's been three levels of speeches that have come or three cycles of speeches that have come against Job. And they're trying to connect his suffering to a specific sin. Confess your sin, Job, and it will go away. All your problems will be made right. They reject the fact that Job could possibly be innocent. And yet Job does not lose his faith in God. He doesn't give up on God, curse God and die like his wife tells him. Instead, he he grows in his love for God. Certainly he's frustrated and he struggles with this concept of innocent suffering. But but we'll see here that he demands to have a conversation with God. It seems as if God is far away. He recognizes that all things come from the hand of a loving, sovereign God and he doesn't understand how this suffering could possibly come on him in such an extraordinary way. 
He wants to have a conversation with God so that God will give him some answers. And up until this point, really, Job hasn't crossed the line. Now I think he starts to when he demands this conversation with God. And while no one denies God's justice, neither Job or his friends say that God is unjust. That's why there's this conflict between him and his friends. Because they say, God is just, so you must be suffering because of evil. You're being punished for evil. Job doesn't say that, that, that God is unjust either. But he's saying, I am suffering, yes. God is just, yes. But I'm also innocent. And the, the three friends can't see how this could be a possibility. And so we've looked at the first two rounds of speeches from these uncomforting comforters. We come to the final round of speeches. It includes a speech from Eliphaz, an extended one that takes up a chapter, chapter 22. Job responds. Then we have a, a, a brief speech by Bildad, the second friend, but he seems to be cut off. Job continues all the way on through chapter 31. We'll look at these uh, six chapters this morning, chapter 22 through 27. Here's Eliphaz in chapter 22. He claims that Job has to be guilty. Look at verse 2. Can a vigorous man be of use to God or a wise man be useful to himself? Is there any pleasure to the Almighty if you are righteous or profit if you make your ways perfect? Is it because of your reverence that He reproves you that He enters into judgment against you? Listen, Job, God doesn't take any pleasure in your righteousness. But when you're wicked, when you've defied a holy God, then he, he perks up. Then He comes and His wrath is, is kindled. And if you're really wise and, and really innocent, Job, then why are you suffering? Answer me that. That's, what, that's how he begins his speech. And so he goes on in verses 5-11 through 11, and he suggests, Bildad does, how Job might have sinned. Look at verse 5. Is not your wickedness great and your iniquities without end? For you have taken pledges of your brothers without cause and stripped men naked. To the weary you have given no water to drink and from the hungry you have withheld bread. But the earth, the earth belongs to the mighty man and the honorable man dwells in it. You have sent widows away empty, and the strength of the orphans have been crushed. Therefore, snares surround you, and sudden dread terrifies you, or darkness so that you cannot see, and abundance of water covers you. You want to know why you're suffering, Job? It's because you've done something wicked. You keep saying that you're innocent, but let me give you some examples of ways that you probably have sinned against God. What about when you neglected the poor? Have you helped all the poor in the world, Job? Have you helped... All the orphans and the widows. So what Bildad is saying, see, you have done something wrong. Admit it. Now verse 8 is probably better translated like the NIV has it. Though you are a powerful man. Though you are a mighty man. So what he's saying here is, your wickedness is great. You've neglected these people even though you had the means to help them. Because you've neglected them, you are a sinful man. And perhaps that is why terror has come upon you. Isn't that what he says in verses 10 and 11? He goes on to say in verses 12 through 20 that your words are like the wicked, but you should recognize God's greatness. Job, do you really think God is so far away that He won't judge those on the earth? 
Do you really think He doesn't care what you're doing? He doesn't see your little sins that you, you commit that you think you're doing in hiding? Look at verse 17. They said, this is Bildad speaking on behalf of wicked people, who he's calling Job a wicked person. He says, they, the wicked, said to God, depart from us, and what can the Almighty do to them? Is that what you think, Job? You think God doesn't care about your wickedness? The wicked may prosper, Job, and the righteous may suffer, but that only hope happens for a short period of time. Eventually, it will catch up to you. You may say that you have been innocent, but it may not have been something that you recently did. So if the wicked are prospering and if the righteous are suffering, then that doesn't stay that way, is what Bildad thinks. He thinks eventually it will catch up to a person. In a sense, he's right. But he doesn't have a category for innocent suffering. He does not see that, that a person could possibly be innocent before God in the sense that he has been, been uh, serving God, fearing God, turning away from evil, and still receiving suffering. There has to be a one-for-one -one correlation between your sin and your suffering. In other words, the view that God has of you in heaven, according to Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz, is this. The view that God has of you in heaven is the same view He has of you on the earth. So whatever's happening to you on the earth is how God views you in heaven. If you're suffering, God is punishing you. If you're prospering, then God is showing His favor upon you. But Job's saying, is that true? Look around! Do wicked people not prosper? Do you not know anyone who is righteous who suffers? And they say, well, yeah, I can grant that, but that's only for a short period of time. The problem with his, his idea of Job is that he neglects the idea or he ignores the idea that Job is not wicked like God has said in chapters 1 and 2 and that Job is not concerned with regaining his prosperity. So in verses 21 to 30, Eliphaz finishes his, his speech, his last one in fact, in this book. And he finishes by calling Job to repent, to return to the Almighty. The only problem is, is Job has not strayed from the Almighty, has he? He has remained steadfast in his faith. Verses, or chapters 23 and chapter 24 show Job's response to Eliphaz. We see, beginning in chapter 23, Job's desire to talk with God. And this is where I say I think Job crosses the line. Verse 3, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn the words which he would answer and perceive what he would say to me. Would he contend with me by the greatness of his power? No, surely he would pay attention to me. There the upright would reason with him and I would be delivered forever from my judge. Here Job is demanding an interview with God, an answer, a reason why this is happening. Did Job ever know why he suffered in his lifetime? It's not recorded that he did. It seems as if he did not. Certainly during this time he did not have an answer. And so what he's calling for is this. God, I want to sit down with you. You on one side of the couch, me on the other. And I want to talk to you. And you're going to give me answers for why I am suffering. Now, God will show him later that he, he should not have demanded that sort of thing. And in a powerful way, in chapters 38 through 41, God comes in a storm and he says, 
Who are you to darken my wisdom with, with words without knowledge? You come to me, Job, and I'll answer you. Or, or, or I, uh, I'll ask the questions and you answer me. And so for the next several chapters, God says, where were you when I set all the constellations in place? Where were you when the mountain goat was born on the top of a hill? Do you even know that that's going on, Job? Don't say that you want to sit down and, and, and tell, make me give you the reasons. I am God and there is no other. And Job, of course, has to repent. Not because he had strayed from God, but because he demanded a conversation with him, demanded answers for why he was suffering. So what we can learn here from Job is that it's not wrong to want to see God vindicated. It's not wrong to want to see God be seen as right before his friends. That's what Job wanted and before himself. It's not wrong for us to want to be vindicated ourselves. Have you ever had scoffers come to you and say, all that religion that you're involved in is just a waste of time. Haven't you ever wanted to have some supernatural proof so that they could see it's not a waste of time? It's not wrong to want to be vindicated, but, but to demand that God does it in this lifetime is a problem. God will not necessarily vindicate you in this lifetime. He will not show you to be right to your friends or to your enemies. For us to demand God to give us all the answers would be like a bowl of cake batter saying to its baker, I would rather be made into muffins than into a cake, than into a round cake. I mean, it's foolishness. It's like Isaiah says that we are the clay and God is the potter. How can we say to the, the potter, don't make us this way. Make me a different way. In the sight of God, we are very minor. We are finite. He is infinite. We cannot question His ways. Job goes on to talk about his innocence in chapter 23, verses 8 through 17. Job says, I go all over the place. I try to find God, but He's not there. I go north, south, east, and west, verses 8 and 9, but He's not there. And Job is terrified, verse 16, that God won't answer him. It is God, he says, who has made my heart faint and the Almighty who has dismayed me. I wish I could just sit down and talk to him. Notice what Job values more than his own life, verse 12. I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Job didn't say, more than my possessions, more than my family. Hey, that would be great if we could say, I love God more than my possessions and my family. But Job says, more than my necessary food, more than my very life. The thing that I love most is the words of God. I desire to hear Him speak. And, and, and Eliphaz had told him that if he repented, that all of his possessions would be restored to him. And Job was saying to him, that's not what I want. I don't want my possessions back. I simply want God to speak. You just tell me what's going on. I want God to speak. Verse 13, but he is unique and who can turn him and what his soul desires that he does. Here Job's Job wishes that he could force God to answer, but Job knows that no one can overpower God. He recognizes that he is finite. 
that God is free. He is not bound by anything outside of Himself. No one can force Him to do anything. No one can overpower Him. No group of people can do it either. Chapter 24, Job talks about the perplexity of the wicked going unpunished. Verse 1, why does God make His justice, why does God not make His justice more apparent? Why does He just let these wicked people go on in prosperity? Verses 2 through 12, He describes the injustices and the effects of the wicked, the, the wicked people. God seems to ignore them. Notice the wicked person's relationship to the light in verse 13. Verse 13, they are rebels to the light. Verse 14 and 15, they avoid the light in order to commit murder and adultery. Verse 16, they guard themselves in the light. Verse 16 and 17 talks about how they reverse their night and day. In other words, they, they live for the night. They, they're awake during the night because they, they love darkness so much. Job says the wicked seem to prosper in that way and God doesn't seem to care. But he does know that the wicked will be judged. Look at verse 18. They are insignificant on the surface of the water. Their portion is cursed on the earth. They do not turn toward the vineyards. Drought and heat consume the snow water. So does Sheol, those who have sinned. A mother will forget him. The worm feeds sweetly till he is no longer remembered. And wickedness will be broken like a tree. Job wishes that the wicked would be judged and he recognizes that they will one day. He concludes his response to Eliphaz there at the end of chapter 24. And in chapter 25... Bildad comes back on the scene. He's sitting there listening. And he begins to speak. He says, A man cannot be perfect before God. Man is depraved. He asks a great question verse 4. How then can a man be just or justified with God? How can a man be right, righteous before a holy God? Isn't that a good question that Bildad asks? But... Bildad's point in these six short verses is that there must have been something that Job did to deserve his suffering. If you're suffering, there's only two possibilities according to Bildad. Either God is right or Job is right. You can't both be right. That's what Bildad thinks. If you're suffering, you're either being punished for evil or Job is right, he's innocent, and he's being wrongly treated. You can't have both. You can't have God and Job right and Job still suffering. It doesn't make sense. If they're suffering, then either God or Job is wrong. Well, Job responds. It seems as if he cuts Bildad off. Remember, previously when people have talked, they've given this whole chapter, which works out to about 25 to 30 verses in our Bibles. Here, he only speaks for six verses. Job seems to cut him off, and then Zophar doesn't even get an opportunity to speak. It's as if Job says, that's enough. Enough of your foolish counsel, of your uncomforting words. Job takes from chapter 26 all the way till chapter 31 to give a response. Notice what he says in verses 2 and 3. What a help, chapter 26, what a help you are to the weak. Hey, this is sarcastic. What a help you are. How have you saved the arm without strength? What soul? What counsel you have given to one without wisdom? What helpful insight you have abundantly provided? Don't tell me about how I have not helped the poor. How have you helped the poor? 
Don't try to give me counsel to, as if I have no wisdom. I'm not inferior to you, Job says in other places. Job knows that God's ways are unsearchable, verses 5 through 14. That God's wisdom is unknowable. That He is omniscient. I understand that He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. But when I think about Him, look at verse 14. When I think about all of His ways, behold, these are the fringes of His ways. And how faint a word we hear of Him. But His mighty thunder, who can understand? God has power upon power. I can't even fathom how powerful God is. That He created the world. That He brings these violent thunderstorms and these floods. It's not as if when He does that, He exhausts all His power. He's still got plenty of power to spare. This is, these, Job says, are only the fringes of His power. God is far greater than all of the acts that He's ever performed. He didn't use all of His power when He created it. It was only the fringe of it. In other words, God doesn't do all that He can do. He has plenty of power to spare. So, if that's the case, Job says, don't speak about God's ways as if you know them. If God's power is limitless, if God's knowledge is limitless, then don't speak to me about how you know God's ways. Because you can't say that. Notice what Job's desire is in chapter 27. His greatest desire is to be faithful to God all the way till death. Verse 1. Then Job continued his discourse and said, As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty who has embittered my soul, for as long as life is in me, and the breath of God is in my nostrils, my lips certainly will not speak unjustly, nor will my tongue mutter deceit. Far be it from me that I should declare you right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach any of my days. Some verses to consider for each of us. Job's greatest desire was to be faithful to God until death. That he would not give up on God no matter what. At the end of chapter 27, Job shows and, and understands that the wicked will be judged that the truly wicked do deserve God's wrath. And the three friends know it. Look at verse 11. I will instruct you in the power of God. What is with the Almighty I will not conceal. Behold, all of it, you have seen it. All of you have seen it. Why then do you act foolishly? What he's saying here is, you know that it's true. You know that the wicked will be judged. You know that it's true. Why don't you admit it? I want to conclude by asking four questions and answering them. Number one, is it worth it to follow God? I mean, think about it. If, as a believer, you have to go through trials, and at the end of it, you have nothing as far as worldly possessions to show for it, isn't it tempting to not serve God? Isn't it tempting to give up on God? I mean, why can't I just enjoy life? Why do I, why do I beat myself into slavery? Why do I beat myself into obedience to Christ when I could just 
enjoy the pleasures of this world, and I wouldn't have to suffer anything in this life. I mean, look at those wicked people who seem to be prospering so much. There are millions and billions of people out there who are who don't know God, who have rejected God to His face and seemingly have no trials at all. They seem never to suffer. So if we put them on a scale, it'd be suffering and no earthly good or no suffering and lots of earthly good. Which one would you choose? Is it worth it to follow God? Job recognized that the that there is inconsistencies here on this earth, is there not? That there are innocent people who do suffer. And there are wicked people who do prosper. But one day, they will all be made right. When Jesus Christ stands at the great white throne and He separates the wheat and the tares and He destroys those who have opposed Him, it will be clear to all, will it not, that God was just. And it was worth it to follow God, no matter what trouble comes your way. It is worth it to follow God. Number two, how does Job's life turn out? Job claims to be innocent, but God seems to rebuke him. Was Job innocent? We know from chapters 1 and 2 that Job was innocent. And I want to show you at the end, chapter 42, verse 7, that God does commend Job for his righteousness, for speaking rightly about God. Chapter 42, verse 7. It came about, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. God commends Job because he spoke rightly in the whole. As far as overall, generally speaking, Job did not speak wrongly about God. So God does commend him. The temptation for us who are weaker in faith than Job is when trials come, not to want to hear God speak. We want to hide from God. We recognize that God is sovereign over all things, that He is in control of every single act of the universe. And so when we feel this suffering, we feel this uh, the weight of the struggle that we have, we're tempted to think, I don't want to hear God speak. He's caused me trouble. Not good. I don't want to hear Him speak. But Job wants to hear God speak. And this is what the primary part of Job's statement is. I desire to hear my God speak. I desire it more than my necessary food. I would rather have God speak than to have breath in my lungs. So we should reflect on Job's desire for God's Word. It's chapter 23, verse 12 that we already looked at. But I also want to show you that Job is not only commended for his faith, he's also condemned. Look at chapter 40, verse 2. He's also not condemned, but maybe a better word would be rebuked. He's rebuked in chapter 40, 
verse 2. This is the Lord speaking to Job. Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. He's speaking directly to Job as we see in verse 1 there. And he says, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Do you want to have a conversation with me really, Job? Was that right of you to demand a conversation with me and to demand all the answers? The outcome of Job's faith is that God, or of Job's conversation, is that God both commends him and rebukes him. He was rebuked because of what we saw in chapter 23, that he demanded to have him sit down, to have a conference with God. In chapter 9, verse 33, he says, Who will be the umpire between me and God? I mean, God's on a completely different plane with me, but I need to speak to him. I need an arbitrator between me and him that can plead my case to him, because how can I plead before him? We'll talk more about what this means in the weeks ahead, but what you should recognize is that God both commends and rebukes him. Number three, how do you know if you're suffering innocently? Sometimes when we are suffering and we hear a message like this, our immediate thought is, that must be me. And it very well could be. But I can't promise you that all of your adversity in life has come as a result of something that, that's happened in Job, of a conversation between God and Satan in heaven. Certainly we recognize that Satan needs permission to do whatever he does, but there, there are other reasons besides innocent suffering. So if you're suffering, it may not be a result of innocence. God occasionally uses suffering as a means to wake people up spiritually, does He not? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, Paul says, Some of you are sick, and some even sleep, or some are dead, as a result of not taking seriously the Lord's Supper. So it seems as if God still does punish or, 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 or um, correct people through suffering. Punish, maybe not the best word, because Christ really has received all the punishment that we deserved. He corrects people through suffering. And so maybe a better way to put this is the discipline of God, that He uses suffering to help discipline us. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10 says that God disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. Chapter 12, verse 14 of Hebrews, without holiness no one will see the Lord. So how does He make us to be holy and how does He make sure that we are firm all the way to the end? One of the ways He does it is through suffering. He helps correct us to bring us back on the right path. So sometimes we suffer because of discipline. And in discipline, God is training us to persevere. Perhaps a five-year struggle with an aggressive cancer is not preferable, but in, in terms of eternity, it is a momentary light affliction that is a producing an eternal weight of glory. And sometimes God uses those times of suffering, innocent or otherwise, to help strengthen our faith. Remember what the psalmist said in chapter 119? Verse 67, he says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. point is, I would not have kept your word as well as I do now that I've gone through suffering. Those of you who have can, can attest to that. 
That now you think more clearly about eternal things than you had before and you're more concerned about keeping God's Word. The psalmist later goes on to say in verse 71, It was good for me to be afflicted so I could learn your statutes. In other words, I could not have learned them as well if I had not suffered. Sometimes God uses suffering to strengthen our faith, to discipline us. Suffering helps us to have a long-term perspective, to take our eyes off of this world which is fading away and put our eyes on the world to come, on the life to come when Christ will make everything right, when Christ will reign on this earth for a thousand years and then for all of eternity to follow. It could also come through, suffering could also come through opposition. Now, I'm not talking about opposition for evil as a result of our evil. In other words, if I speed, I get a speeding ticket. Call that some sort of suffering. Or if I don't pay my taxes, the government starts coming after me, and now I have all this, this, this suffering that I have to, to face. Or if I'm going to want to commit murder. I'm not talking about opposition as a result of our evil. That does come. I'm talking about opposition because of your association with Jesus Christ. Being persecuted is part of being a Christian. Isn't that what Mark's Gospel is all about? The beginning of Mark's Gospel, we see this great popularity that Jesus has in the first eight chapters, but then it seems to make a transition. That after they rejected Him and Jesus becomes more clear in what He's saying, it seems as if the point of Mark's Gospel is that if you're going to be like Christ, then you too will have to suffer. Jesus, although He is God, was persecuted. He suffered as a result of opposition. And if you are going to follow Christ, then you also will have to suffer. That's what He says in chapter 8, verse 34. Whoever wants to be My disciple must take up his cross and follow Me. If you want to follow Me, then be willing to suffer. Paul calls believers more than conquerors. Jesus in Revelation refers to believers as those who overcome. All of these writers in Scriptures, all of these characters in Scripture recognize that this, in this world it will be a struggle for believers. There will be opposition because of your relationship to Jesus Christ. So, although you may be suffering innocently, there are other reasons that you may suffer as well. could be for discipline. could be for strengthening your faith. could be as a result of opposition because of your relationship with Jesus Christ. Number four. Turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Because this is the verse we often go to. In fact, it's the verse we use to encourage other people when we find out that they're suffering. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Let me read this first and then I'll ask the question. Because sometimes we get a wrong understanding of what this verse means. Paul says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. What is Paul saying here? Is he being 
foolishly optimistic, saying that everything in life is good. That's not what the text says. He doesn't say that everything is good for those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. What does he say? That things are working out together for good. Do you see the difference? It doesn't mean we have to have this Pollyannish, utopian mindset that, hey, bring on the suffering. It's good. No, Paul says that everything is being worked out together for good. And so while the suffering that you are experiencing may or may not be innocent suffering, no matter what kind of trial comes your way, if you, can, if you have trusted in Christ, if you are called according to His purpose, then you can be sure that God is working it out for your good. No matter how difficult it is. Sometimes we look at good in this verse and we interpret it in a selfish or materialistic way, don't we? But we must understand that the good that's talked about in verse 28 is in light of what's going on in the context of this chapter Look at verse 22. What has Paul been talking about? He says, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Paul's speaking about the good that is coming your way as a result of your suffering in the context of bad things that happen in the world. Creation groans. And we ourselves groan. It doesn't feel right to live in this world, does it, as a Christian? Something that's not right. But Paul says, don't fear. Look at verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. In other words, all these bad things that happen in life, they're not going to separate us from the love of Christ. That God is working for our good, despite the bad that's going on all around us. Despite the suffering. So, how can we possibly trust in a God who, who allows adversity to come to us? How can we possibly trust that God will accomplish this for our good? Look at verse 31. What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Here's what Paul's saying. Did God not show His love to you in the greatest way He possibly could by allowing His Son to die for you? Is there a greater act of love that could be shown to you? There is not. So, if He did that, if He showed you that love, if He poured out His love in that way to you on the cross, then how will He not also give with Jesus Christ those who are in Him all these other great things. Now, that doesn't mean material prosperity. It means that He's working all of your sufferings out for His good. So we can't question His ways. We can't say, well, God, this doesn't seem to make sense. It doesn't seem that you're loving to me right now. 
Because we've already seen His love in the greatest way possible. Do you see? Christ hung on the cross and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And He did that so that you wouldn't have to be forsaken by your Father. He was judged for you. So when you get to the point in your life when it feels as if God has abandoned you, reflect on the cross. Think about the love that was poured out for you there. And recognize that the worst abandonment that you could possibly fear has already been taken from you because Jesus has already been abandoned for you. You see, God doesn't abandon you in times of suffering. He takes these opportunities to use them for your good and for His glory. And whenever you question God's love for you, go back to Romans 8, verses 31 and 32. If He showed you His love by doing the most powerful thing possible, killing His own Son, then why would He ever do you harm? He's not punishing you if you're a believer. He is not punishing you. He is working it out for your good. All that is happening in your life is for your good and His glory. And so with Paul we can say that this momentary light affliction... Wait a second. This struggle with illness does not seem momentary and light. This struggle with opposition with people at my work or my neighbors or my family doesn't seem like it's momentary and light. But Paul says in light of eternity it is. Because it's producing in you an eternal weight of glory that is far beyond measure. So we can't get answers to all of our specific questions, but we do have the assurance that we serve a God who knows all the answers because He's planned it all. And so we don't have to fear. Ezekiel chapter 7, verse 14 says, In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the, in the day of adversity, consider God has made the, made the one as well as the other so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. When times are going well, be thankful to God, yes. But in times of adversity, recognize that God has made them both and He's done it to your believer for your good. And that is something that we can praise God for with Job. Let's pray. Father, You know our cares. You know our deepest burdens. You know each person's trial that they're going through right now. And and if there are people who are not going through deep trials right now, certainly they will come. That's part of being a believer. It's part of living in this world, a world that is in rebellion against You. It seems as if there is an injustice going on all around us. And we certainly would love to see the answers. Why do the wicked prosper? Why do we have wicked governing officials? We wish we could have all the answers, but we understand that as Job will see, you are greater than us. You are infinite. And we cannot have all the answers. And sometimes that's a good thing because it requires us to trust in you. It requires us to lean heavily upon you knowing that You are in control, that we have nothing to fear, that You are a great God and a loving God, and You're doing what is best for us. Oh, we'd like to tell our...
scoffer, the scoffing people around us, why we're suffering. Sometimes we simply do not know. And so we pray that in the times of suffering, they would help us to stand up and, and, and suffer with Christ outside the camp as He did. It's part of being in a relationship with Jesus Christ. All who are godly, Paul says, will suffer persecution. And we know that, that the creation groans for that day when everything will be made right and where you will be seen to be right in all you do, where no one will question your justice and say, you can't do that. Right now, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense in some cases. You give us limited understanding with what you've given to us in your Word, but after that, we have to leave it to faith in you and trust that you know what is best. We pray that you would do a great work within us as a result of the suffering that comes our way. We pray that you would strengthen our faith and help us to, to, to trust your word more, as the psalmist said, in the middle of affliction. We pray that we would desire your word more than our daily necessities. That we would desire it more than the possessions in life, more than the relationships in life, yes, but more than even our sustenance, our food. That's hard to say that we desire your word more than that, but we pray that you would strengthen us in that way. That we would commit like Job to live this life all the way to the end without giving up on you, without turning our backs on you. May you strengthen our faith as we see you more clearly in your word. And we pray that, that we would be a comfort unlike these three friends to those who are suffering. Help us not to come with accusations and to speak on behalf of You where You haven't spoken, but to come to put our arm around the person who's suffering and let them know that we're praying for them and that we'd like to do anything that we can to help. Help us not to be judgmental but to be loving. And in so doing, we expect You to show Your glory in our church, in our homes, in our families, in our relationships. We expect for You to magnify Your name. We love You and we thank You for the, the trials and the sufferings that do come our way. We don't beg for them. We don't ask for them. We don't wish them upon anybody, but we are thankful for them in the sense that they Teach us to be more like Your Son. Continue to do that work that You started in us. We pray in Jesus' name, our great Savior who loved us and gave Himself for us. Amen.